People are willing to believe nearly anything about who Jesus is except who He plainly said He is, which is to say, the Son of God and the Messiah of the world. Herod Antipas is at the center of our story today, so we'll be talking about him quite a bit today. But just a little bit about Herod Antipas. Herod Antipas was the son of Herod the Great, and he had a Samaritan mother. So Herod Antipas had an Idumean father and a Samarian mother, which of course put him in good graces with the Jews that he ruled over, of course. So Herod Antipas was given the, the area known as Galilee and Perea. He takes control in 4 BC, which is following the death of Herod the Great. Now remember, Jesus is in Egypt at this point. And then the dream comes to Joseph saying, the one who wanted to kill you, he's dead. And so Joseph returns, but we're told that Joseph was afraid to go back to Judea. Why was he afraid to go back to Judea? Because who's in charge in Judea? Archelaus, even more murderous than his father. So instead, he returns to Nazareth, his hometown. So Jesus, from his earliest memory, Jesus never had a memory, a human memory, of any time of his life in which Herod Antipas was not the ruler of the region in which he lived. Virtually Jesus' entire life, Herod Antipas ruled the area in which Jesus lived. So this man, Herod Antipas, he was bloodthirsty as well, but he was more savvy with it. He was more of a, he was more of a politician than either his brothers or his father. He was smart enough to to read people, to know the people that he ruled in such a way as to get what he wanted without necessarily being quite so murderous about it. For example, one of the things that Herod Antipas did was he was the first and only of the Herodian rulers, or the, the Roman rulers for that matter, who did not mint coins with their image on it because he understood that that was a hot spot for the Jews. The Jews hated that. They hated having to use coins that had the image of the ruler on it because they associated that with idolatry and rightfully so. Because we might ask, well, does that mean that our coins today are idolatry? No, it doesn't because it's a totally different context. The Jewish coins and the coins minted by the Herodian leaders, they had explicit statements of divinity associated with particularly the Caesars. And so it wasn't like a quarter with George Washington's picture on it. It was like the picture of the, the ruler with words acclaiming divinity for him. So it really was a violation of the first commandment for the Jews. And the Jews hated that. Herod Antipas understood that. And so he didn't push that button. He accomplished a number of things. He built some cities. Tiberius was the best known city that he built. Tiberius, of course, we recognize that the Sea of Galilee was really named the Sea of Tiberius. That was the more common name because that city was on the Sea of Tiberias. So Herod Antipas, he rules for about 43 years. And as we noted earlier, Mark calls him King Herod. Now, what's the big deal there? Here's the thing. When Herod Antipas was given his kingdom by Caesar Augustus, he petitioned Caesar Augustus for the title king. Caesar Augustus denied it And Herod Antipas seethed over that for the rest of his life. Herod Antipas was a man 
that was extremely interested in what people thought about him. That was what made his boat float. He, his besetting sin, as we'll see through the passage, his besetting sin was the fear of man. He was extremely concerned about what people thought of him. And so he wanted the, king, the title King Herod. Caesar knew that, and to keep him in check, denied him the title. Now, later on, about the year 36 or 37, another Herod, we'll get to him in just a minute, another Herod's going to come along by the name of Agrippa. Agrippa was one of the grandsons of Herod the Great. Agrippa is going to be given a kingdom by the, the Caesar that's in charge then, a man by the name of Gaius. And Gaius is going to give Agrippa the title, you guessed it, King Agrippa because he's referred to as King Agrippa in the Acts. So Agrippa, the grandson or the nephew of Herod Antipas, is going to be given the title king, and that's going to sit even worse with Herod Antipas now. And so he will go back a second time and petition the Caesar once again for the title king. And he's going to do all that at the prodding of his wife Herodias. We'll talk about her in just a minute. So he's going to go, and in the midst of going there, his nephew, again, Agrippa, is going to convince the Caesar, Gaius, he's going to convince him that Antipas is plotting a revolt because he's got an army built up. We'll talk about his army in just a minute. That'll come into play when we talk about Herodias. But he's going to convince Agrippa, the nephew is going to convince the Caesar that Antipas, he's planning a revolt when he really wasn't. So he comes and he pleads with the Caesar, the new Caesar, once again, please give me the title of king. Well, not only does he not give him that title, but he then takes his kingdom from him and banishes him to Gaul as well as his wife Herodias. Now we see why it is that Mark calls him King Herod, don't we? Because Mark is writing to Romans and nobody knew the story like Romans. They knew all that the story about Gaius. They knew the whole story about uh, Augustus. And they knew the whole story about Agrippa and how he was given the, the title king and how uh, Antipas wanted the title his whole life. And it was the wanting of that title that was his downfall. Do you see why, what Mark's getting at here? King Agrippa. And then later on, he's going to make sure to throw that king in one more time. And twice he's going to say, I'll give you up to half my kingdom. He didn't have a kingdom. He wasn't a king. And so Mark is making this sort of backsided sort of stab at him. You see how just beautifully the word of God is put together. So this man Agrippa is the ruler over Galilee and Perea during Jesus's lifetime. He will be the most significant of the Herods in all of the New Testament. He will make three very important appearances. This is one in connection with the execution of John the baptizer. He will make another very important appearance when Jesus makes that reference to him when, he, when the Pharisees come and they say, do you know that Herod's plotting to kill you? And Jesus will, for the only time in all of Scripture, make a pejorative statement about a person. He'll say, you go and tell that fox this and that. Okay, That's this Herod Antipas that he's speaking of. He will make a third appearance in Luke's Gospel when, as you remember, he now rules the region of Galilee well, in Jesus' trial, you remember how that went about. Pilate, Pontius Pilate, was trying to get out of the whole thing. He knew Jesus wasn't guilty. He was trying to get out of the whole thing and wash his hands of it. And you remember how Luke tells the story that Pilate learned that Jesus was a 
Galilean. And then Pilate said, oh, what am I doing here? He's not even my subject. And so he sends him to Herod Antipas. And he goes to Herod Antipas. You remember the story? He goes to Herod Antipas and Herod Antipas is beside himself with joy because Jesus is coming to see him. Luke tells us that Herod had long wanted to meet Jesus and he long wanted to see these mighty acts of Jesus. So Jesus comes to Herod Antipas and Herod says to him, I just do something, make something appear or disappear or levitate or do something. He's just beside himself wanting to see. And you remember what Jesus does? Jesus refuses to say a word. Now, that in itself, is, that's a whole sermon in and of itself. If somebody wants to write a sermon about that, that's a good one. The Son of God, the Messiah of the world, is standing before Him, and Jesus refuses to say one word to Him. That's profound. So Jesus refuses to speak. Herod finally gets tired of that game, sends him back, dresses him in funny clothes, sends him back with a message saying, He's a moron, but he's innocent. So then he comes back to Pilate and Herod dumps him back onto Pilate's lap. That's the third appearance of Herod Antipas in the Scriptures. So he's the most significant Herod. He makes the most appearances in the Scriptures. So we'll return to Herod Antipas just a little bit because he's at the center of the story today. But just real quickly, let's just see and recognize the other two Herods that are found in Scripture. The other, the, the uh, fourth Herod would be Herod Agrippa. Herod Agrippa was one of the grandsons of King Herod the Great. Herod Agrippa is the one who shows up early on in Acts. Remember, he's the one who kills James. And then we're told that he he saw, he realized that killing James pleased the Jews. So he arrested Peter and it was the Passover. He, He intended to kill Peter. And then what happened? You remember the story? The angel comes and sets Peter free. And then Peter says that the angel, that God has saved him from Herod. And then later on, a little bit later in the next chapter, there's this disagreement with this delegation from Tyre and Sidon and Herod Agrippa, also known as Agrippa I. Herod Agrippa puts on his robes and sits down and these people are saying, glory, glory. And then he takes the glory and then he dies and the worms eat his body. That was that that Agrippa. Well, his only son who is now a great-grandson of Herod the Great, was a man by the name of Herod II. Herod II shows up in the end of the story of Acts, Acts 25 and 26, because Paul goes before that Herod, that Agrippa, that Agrippa called Agrippa II. And that's the Agrippa that, remember Paul says, Agrippa, you, you believe the prophets. I know you believe the prophets. So uh, this Agrippa, he was one who believed in the Jewish way of faith. He believed in the Jewish prophets. He believed in the Jewish scriptures. And Paul appeals to that. He was the one that said, Paul, you would convert me in a day. So that was Agrippa II. He ruled a tiny little speck of land, which coincided with Herod Philip way up in the Decapolis. So those are the Herods of the scriptures. The Herod family, very prominent in the scriptures. But our focus today is this particular man, Herod Antipas, the Herod who is known as, in Mark's words here, as King Herod. So now to begin again, verse 14, King Herod heard of it for Jesus' name had become known. So what did King Herod or Herod Antipas, what did he hear of? 
So here we see the connection, and this is why Mark has placed this here, because Mark's having a flashback. We're not having a flashback. He's writing a flashback. He's flashing back to something that happened previously, and the connection for the whole thing is Herod heard of what? He heard of Jesus. How did he hear of Jesus? Well, because of the 12 that were sent out. That's what we just studied. The 12 that were sent out, they go throughout the villages declaring this message of Jesus, and that's what precipitates Herod hearing of this. Certainly, Herod has heard of Jesus, and he has heard of what Jesus is doing, because Herod was a ruler that was in touch with the people that he ruled. He, things didn't slip by him. So he had certainly heard about Jesus, but now he's hearing a whole lot more because of the 12 that were sent out previously. So that's how the whole thing is connected. So Herod heard of it, for Jesus' name had become known. Some said, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. Others said he is Elijah, and others said he is a prophet like one of the prophets of old. So King Herod has heard of it. The name has become known. And then we're given this, this statement about what people seem to be saying. Some are saying he's, he's John, meaning Jesus. Some are saying that Jesus is John the baptizer back from the dead. Why are they saying that? Because of the miraculous powers that, that Jesus is doing, which is in and of itself quite an odd thing because the scriptures are plain that John the baptizer never did any miraculous work. The miraculous signs, the miraculous works that were done by Jesus and the apostles, we've said this on a number of occasions, the purpose behind those was to validate the message, to validate the words, the message that was being given. So what was John the baptizer's message? His message was, Messiah is coming. That's what he would say. I'm I'm just a finger pointing to the Messiah. I'm just a voice calling out, Messiah is coming. He's right behind me. So the validation of John's message was Jesus himself. Jesus was the validation of John's message. So therefore, John the baptizer did no signs and wonders because his message, his words needed no validation because Jesus was the validation of his message because his message is repent, make the way straight because Messiah is coming. So It's odd that they would associate Jesus with John the baptizer on the reason of Jesus' miraculous works because John did know miraculous works. But nevertheless, they do. We'll talk about that more in just a second. So some are saying John the baptizer. Some are saying that he's been raised. Some are saying that it's Elijah. Others are saying one of the prophets of old. So that, that rings a familiar bell with us, doesn't it? That rings the familiar bell. We'll get to it in chapter 8. Or much more well known is Matthew 16 where Jesus, of course, says, who do men say that I am? And we see the same answer. Well, some say you're John the Baptist. Others say you're Elijah. Others say you're one of the prophets. Same exact misunderstanding or lack of clarity on Jesus's identity. So the same sort of thing, this seemed to be something that followed Jesus throughout his entire ministry, this Not so much this confusion about his identity, but this mistaken identity in giving him, assigning to him an identity that was one of these, either John the baptizer or Elijah or one of the prophets. So we can understand Elijah. We can understand that because there's a connection. Malachi 4 and verse 5 tells us that that Elijah will come and Elijah's coming will come 
as this precipitation for the coming of the day of the Lord. And so we can see the connection. We can see how people associated John the Baptist with Elijah, and we can see how people associated John the ba- or Elijah with Jesus, of course, as well. We can see the connection there. We'll talk a little bit more about those connections as we go a little bit further this morning. But then the, one of the prophets of old, we can also understand that. One of the prophets of old, we recognize the fact that Jesus not only was one of the prophets, Jesus is the prophet. He, he is the premier prophet. He's the prophet to whom all the other prophets pointed to because he is the one who supremely speaks for God, he himself being God. So we can understand that, but this confusion in his identity just seemed to always persist throughout his entire adult ministry, which brings us to the point of, the, of saying this, it is an, isn't it amazing how people will believe nearly anything about Jesus' identity except what he plainly said is his identity and what he plainly showed through his works and his teachings. Isn't that amazing? How in Jesus' day, all the way up until this day today, people are willing to believe nearly anything about who Jesus is except who he plainly said he is, which is to say the Son of God and the Messiah of the world. People are willing to believe anything about his identity, even to associate him with John the baptizer on a basis of doing miraculous works. And we say, how do you make that connection? Because John did no miracles. How, How do you make that connection there? Or one of the prophets. All of these things say to us that, of course, Jesus' teaching absolutely validated who he was. Jesus' works absolutely validated who who he was. Jesus' words about himself, we've seen that over and over in John's gospel already, or I'm sorry, in Mark's gospel already, that Jesus says to us in plain and simple and straightforward terms who he is. The demons say who, the demons know who he is. Jesus is proclaiming his identity. Mark is proclaiming his identity. And yet, even to this day, we are willing, we are more willing to believe that, that Jesus is really Elvis brought back to life than who he really is. We would believe Jesus is an alien visiting us before we would believe that Jesus is the Messiah of the world. We are willing to believe anything about his identity except who he really said that he is. So some say you're John, some say you're Elijah, some say that others say you're one of the prophets. Uh, Verse 16, But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. So if you want to take a, a pen or a pencil and you want to underline that word I or circle that word I to give it emphasis, that's exactly the way Mark wrote it because Mark puts great emphasis on the I. So it would read something like this, John the Baptist, whom I, even I, beheaded. Herod is saying this, John has been beheaded, and it wasn't Herodias that that beheaded him. It wasn't the dancing girl that beheaded him. It wasn't the guests at the party that beheaded him. It wasn't even the executioner that he sent who beheaded him. He says, I, even I, this John whom I beheaded, has been raised. Verse 17, for it was Herod who had sent and seized John. And so now Mark is flashing back to an episode months in the past. Verse 17, for it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. Verse 18, for John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. So we're familiar with that part of the story. Herodias, 
Here's another Herod figure, only this time it's a female, Herodias. And the fact that John had been proclaiming that this marriage wasn't lawful and they didn't quite like that too much, so that's why they threw him in prison. Some say that John the baptizer was in prison for even up to a year prior to his beheading. But this is sort of the the impetus of the whole story right here, this casting in prison of John on the basis of what John had been proclaiming about Herod and his marriage and then the eventual beheading. And we'll talk about more about the beheading and the circumstances of that. That'll fall into play next week. But let's now familiarize ourselves a little bit with this person Herodias, because this will, again, I think, help to just fill the story out in great, much greater t- detail for us. So Herodias was, of course, as we see, married to Herod at this time. Herodias was a granddaughter of King Herod. So you're probably faster than me. You've already put together the fact that Herod was her uncle. She was married, as the text says, to Herod's brother, Philip. So if you're still putting this together, if you're still putting two and two together, it means that she, her first marriage was also to her uncle. You see how the story is getting more and more disgusting as we go. So she had been married to Uncle Philip. Uncle Philip was her half-uncle. Herodias, again, she was a granddaughter of King Herod the Great. Just by the way, her grandfather, or I'm sorry, not her grandfather, her father, her father was one of the three that Herod the Great killed, one of the, one of his first three sons that, so her father was killed by her grandfather, and her grandmother was the favorite wife of Herod, whom he also killed. So her father was killed by King Herod, and, or Herod the Great, and her grandmother was also killed by her grandfather. Isn't this a really picture, pretty picture of a nice little sort of 1950s Mayberry family, right? So this is, this is the world in which Jesus lived. We could absolutely make a movie of this and people wouldn't believe it because it'd be too much, it'd be too far of a stretch. It'd be too much intrigue and too much moral grossness to the whole thing. But this is the actual story in which this took place. This woman's Father, this woman's father and grandmother were killed by her, were murdered by her grandfather. She now a granddaughter of Herod the Great. First of all, marries her uncle Philip. So as the, as secular history tells us, Herod, Herodias, I'm sorry, and Philip were married. And Philip, you remember, was the one who got the tiny little kingdom up in the Decapolis. And he wasn't really making a whole lot of himself. And in fact, Herod took him out of that rulership role pretty quick and returned him to just a regular citizen of Rome status. So as the story goes, the secular history story goes, Herod Antipas, the center of our story today, wanted to visit Brother Philip in Rome. So Antipas goes to visit Brother Philip there in Rome, in which time he meets his niece Herodias, also his brother's wife Herodias. They meet, and we're told by secular history that they fall in love at first sight. Now you, I am sure, are just as just as biblically astute as myself enough to know that the Bible teaches us that there is no such thing as love at first sight. does not exist. Never has existed. There's no such thing as love at first sight. There's lust at first sight. And there's interest at first sight. But love understood properly cannot possibly exist at first sight by its very nature. So there's lust at first sight, and interest at first sight, and intrigue at first sight, and desire at first sight. 
And so which of those happened? Well, probably some lust at first sight. But here's the other thing that's probably going on at the same time. You remember Philip, who was a little bitty ruler of a little bitty kingdom, who now is the ruler of nothing? Here comes Uncle Antipas, who is not only still a ruler, he's the ruler of a much bigger kingdom. That's what I think was really going on between Herodias and Antipas. I think that there was some lust going on, and I think that there was the opportunity for power, a power grab. And so Herodias and Antipas get together and they say, let's both rid ourselves of our present spouses. So Antipas at the time was married. He was married to the daughter of another king, a king by the name of Aratus. The story just gets better and better. Wait till next week. But he was married to the daughter of a king by the name of Aratus. He was the king of Nabatea, which was the kingdom of Arabia. It bordered Antipas' territory. So he had married the daughter of an Arabian king. He puts her away. Now you can guess the next part of the story. Daddy didn't like that too much. And so when your daddy is a king and... Uh, another king mistreats daddy's daughter, what do you do? You go to war. And that's exactly what they did. He raised an army, brought an army against Herod Antipas. Herod Antipas raised another army and they fought, they warred and they battled for the rest of Antipas's rule. Which explains the reason why Herod Antipas had an army when he went to talk to Caesar Gaius. And his nephew Agrippa fooled the Caesar into thinking that the army is because he's about to revolt against you when it was really this other war going on with the Arabian king. You see, tons of intrigue in the story, right? Did you know that there was this much behind the story? So he puts his first wife away. Herodias puts Philip away and then they get married. And now you see why it is that John was saying, and the verb tense there is imperfect. He didn't just say it once. He was saying over and over. It is not lawful. So this was much more than just an adulterous affair. This was much more than just a divorce, an unrighteous divorce. This was much more than just one woman putting away her husband and another man putting away his wife and then they get married. This was much more than even the fornication that took place before they were married. This was a direct violation of God's law in Leviticus, which says, you shall not uncover your mother's nakedness. You shall not uncover your sister's nakedness. This was a marriage that existed between blood relations. And this is why John was adamant to say, this is not lawful. 